Let's pray. Gracious God, I pray that over the next few moments that you will empty me, break my will, and fill me and form me into an instrument, as broken as it may be, into an instrument of your peace, of your grace, as I bring forth the gospel message, good news. Lord, I believe that you are in this place. And I believe, O oh God, that your spirit is moving in and out of every uh, aisle. And, and for some, O oh God, we need to be reminded of, of, our, of our place in your kingdom, that we are your children, because the storms around us, they, they can distract us, they can cause us, O oh God, to keep our eyes, or at least turn our eyes away from you. So do what Romans 8.16 asks or promises. Your spirit would remind our spirit that we are your children. For others, God, they might be at the end of their rope, tried everything, and just uh, as a way to um, try uh, one last thing, they, they have on their hearts this issue, this, this burden. And I pray that, uh, that that you would give them the strength to lay those aside or lay them at the foot of the cross. In all of this, God, I pray that your will be done. In your name we pray. Amen. So um, we're in this series uh, that's centered around this idea of following Jesus, right? Following Jesus. You, you know, I got, I got everything kind of set up right. You know how difficult it is to share this space with Shane, so um, now you can see me kind of spread out here. But we're, we're in this series called Following Jesus, Following Jesus, and last week we talked about this idea of, of the cost of, of discipleship. And, um, and, and we, what Jesus says, said to us, or said, uh, uh, what we talked about last week is that God, even though God addresses a group, he speaks to individuals. He speaks and calls individuals into this, this discipleship to follow him in full disclosure of the cost. And, and this is what, we, what he said uh, last week, rather. He said, so therefore, Jesus says, if any of you does not renounce all that he or she has, they cannot be my disciple. And it takes faith to uh, follow a call of Christ. When Jesus calls and says, I want you to be my disciple. It takes faith. It takes faith that Jesus is enough. It takes faith that I, uh, that I really uh, might need Jesus, right? It takes faith to think that maybe, okay, God, I'm going uh, to approach this as a tag team, all right? And, and maybe when I have exhausted all of my efforts, uh, they, they, uh, then I'll tag you in and, and you can take care of the difficult things. The catastrophic God, we call that. But this is not the call of Christ, because what Paul says is it's Christ in you, not Christ and you. It's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. It's the hope of the Christian, of the disciple. So it takes some faith. It takes some confidence. It takes a little bit of releasing ourselves, denying what we see as the outcome or what we might think it might look like. And it takes faith to lean in 
to this. But here's the beautiful thing about the call of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes this, that obedience to the call of Christ, the fact that Jesus actually calls you, it actually brings you to a place, to a situation, to a circumstance where faith is possible. So even if, the, if you think it's, it takes a lot of faith or it, it, that faith is dwindling or I don't have enough faith, what, what the call of Christ actually does is it answers that question. Because the call of Christ, Christ is not calling you to be his disciple and you have to muster up enough faith on your own. It is the call of Christ that actually brings you to this space where you where he is in you and you are able to lean into this situation, this life daily with faith, the faith that he offers, the faith that he gives. And so when we talk about faith and, and spiritual maturity, we, we re- what we're talking about here is faith maturation, the, the growing of this faith, the, 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 the direction of, of, of in whom this faith is, is placed. Because faith is rather ob- abstract. And even though it is abstract, that we can't really um, define it, we can't really point to it, it is faith is something that has to be reacted upon or acted upon. It is actually you see the the you see faith, you can define faith because you have uh, embraced faith, you have practiced faith because you have confidence in this situation or this experience. You have put flesh to this abstract idea of what faith is. It's something we experience every day, and we sometimes find people judging others, or we might judge others based on the amount of faith that they have. Or other times, we uh, judge our own relationship with God, uh, the ups and the downs, the answered prayers and the unanswered prayers, by this arbitrary amount of faith and comparing it to other. So we, we define, of, man, all I need is just an ounce of faith more than Joey, and then everything's going to be okay. But this is not what faith is. Because when, G, when Peter, and I, and I bring this instance up, this, this, this uh, example up, because Peter is the author of this book, right? When Peter walks on water, there is something, there's a teaching there that Jesus does that is so very important. In fact, Timothy Keller actually uh, defines it this way. It's not the quality of one's faith. It's the object of one's faith. It's not the quantity or the quality. It is the object of that faith. Remember when Peter was invited to come out and walk on water. As long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, what happened? Come on, you know. He walked on water. Now let's get a little bit descriptive here. He walked on top of the waves. Because we all live in, uh, in moments of our lives with waves and storms and wind that are blowing. And as long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, the object of his faith, he was able to do that. But then about two-thirds of the way out, he started to look around and says, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be able to do this. 
Look at these waves. Look at this. I'm a fisherman. I know how physics work. I know that I'm not supposed to be walking on water. And then realizing that this is, when he does this, he starts to notice these things and rationalize that he suddenly uh, begins to sink. And realizing his mistake, Peter cries out and Jesus immediately pulls him up even while the, stor- the storms are still r- raging along. And so in, in, this, in this moment, Jesus pulls him up and looks at him and says, Oh, you of little faith. You'll remember last fall, I talked about this little faith thing. The little faith is not an amount. It is the object of the faith. Peter here was putting his faith in himself, not Jesus. His eyes looked somewhere else and not on Jesus. So when Jesus speaks about this little faith, He's really zeroing in to the hearers or the listeners' object of faith. What is that person looking at? And I wonder if this is what Peter had in mind when he wrote this letter. Because this is written to a group of Christians at a time when persecution, storms, waves were raging against the church. It is just on the precipice of, of, of Nero coming in and, and, and killing Christians and making killing Christians a sport. It is into this, this moment where the waves and the wind seem insurmountable as they looked around that Peter writes these things and says in verse 22, he talks about they have decided to follow Christ. In chapter 1, verse 22, that they're obedient. They've been obedient. They have have acted upon their obedience by loving each other. They've become, as Paul would describe them, new creations. The old has passed and the new has come. And is this newness within them, Peter continues, is a result of the goodness and the mercy that they have experienced. That the mercy of God that has been preached to them. He even says, they, he says, you have been born not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed. All the work of God. And the word that was preached to them was this proclamation of forgiveness and good news from God. And to, revi- to remind them that, that God is still God in the midst of these persecution, in the midst of these storms, in the midst of these, these, uh, these winds and these waves, Peter invites his readers to look above the waves, to look above the storm, to see past the persecution, and to keep their eyes on Christ. That's what he's doing in the last part of chapter 1. He quotes from the Old Testament. That, that it, it, to encourage them that this is all temporary, that, that the work of the word of God within them is internal. As he writes here, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. What's he talking about? The persecution, what you see here, it's temporary. What's eternal, keep your eyes on the eternal. What's eternal is God's work within you. The word of God, that you are his and he is yours. That who, what he says about himself is true. What he promises to do, to do is, is steadfast. 
He says, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, abides forever. And this word, Peter says, this is the word, is the good news that was preached to you. And I dare to say, it's the good news that was preached to you. We all go through storms, don't we? And it seems like in those moments, what happens is our faith diminishes. Our confidence wanes. We start to pull back from all of the different ways that we uh, have been taught and the ways that we have uh, been uh, encouraged to step into a relationship with God. And, and, and we start focusing more on our own abilities, right? Come on, tell me that ain't true. That is true. We need to hear songs. We're reminded over and over of the faithfulness of God. He is the rock, the rock of ages. He's the God of David. He's the one who, who stands over our persecution, our storms, our waves. In fact, if you think of that thing or that person or that thing that's in the future or that shame or regret that you look back in the past, if you can think about that thing or that moment or that um, temptation or that sin or whatever, if you can see it for just a second, the power that it had to disrail you, to pull you off course, and maybe it did, I want you to see it now through the eyes of Peter that whatever it is, it stands in the shadow of God. You may stand in its shadow, but it stands in God's shadow. Goliath towered over David. David stood in the shadow of Goliath. But David knew that Goliath stood in the shadow of God. So this is how Peter ends chapter one. It's the first part of our passage. And this is important because it sets the stage for what Peter wants to talk about next. And what he wants to talk about is faith maturation. How do you grow this faith? How do you keep your eyes on God in the midst of the storm? How do you give yourself forgiveness in the times of the past when you haven't done it? And what do you do in that split second where you were tempted to rely on yourself and not God? And there are so many arrows. We'll talk about some of them in just a second. There are so many arrows that are trying to cut you down and pull you away from the goodness of God. So here is what Paul or Peter, rather, uh, writes in this, this, uh, this passage. He says, 
So put away all malice and deceits and hypocrisy and envy and all slandered and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. His verse three, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, I just want you to know that this is, this is gonna reference back to what he said at the end of chapter one. If indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. So I'm gonna walk through this passage. I want you to walk through with me. Like newborn babies, like newborn babies, Long for the pure spiritual milk. This is the metaphor that Peter uses to invite his, his uh, readers, to invite them into this place where they can get all on the same page. He says, the infant's need for milk to grow is Peter's metaphor for illustrating the absurdity uh, that that Christians conclude that they can grow spiritually if they do not nourish their faith. Basically, this is what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that the Christian's response to the call of Christ is not a once-and-done accomplishment that you can check off your list and, when it's completed. That your faith is not a once-and-done thing. Now, there are some things that should be once and done, right? Forgiveness should be once and done. That should be done. That's a once and done thing, right? But there are other things that should not be once and done. Cleaning. <laughs> Who in their right mind knows, I mean, other than my uh, nine-year-old daughter, that if you clean it once, you've cleaned it once and for all. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't grab, we, don't, we don't believe that. Cleaning is not once and done. Relationships are not once and done. We just don't start a relationship and let it fall. Relationships need nurtured. Relationships need time. You can't be like my grandfather that said to uh, Norma, my grandma, Norma, I said I loved you when we got married. If anything changes, I'll let you know. That's absurd, right? And guys, if you even lean towards that, I hope you have a wife that will remind you that that's not the case. Playing an instrument, it's not a once and done. I'd love to be able to play the drums. But I know from marching band, I can't even, I can't even march in time. I can't even do that. So it's not a once and done thing. Would anyone practice once and done when it comes to feeding a child? It's absurd. So here's Peter's metaphor that he's laying out here. When you are considering faith growth or faith maturation or growing your faith, you cannot conclude that it's a once and done thing. A while back, J.D. Greer wrote a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Okay, I, I just, you can read the book as a whole. If that title you know, offends you or whatnot, I, I, 
be it as it may. But, but one of the things that he was trying to illustrate in that book, his argument is, when we push it back on a one-time event, it's easy for us to be able to say that that is done. I can compartmentalize it, and I can put it in this nice little box, what God has done. My, I asked Jesus into my heart, and that we can put it into a box, and we can sit up on a shelf, and when we need it, we can pull it off the shelf, and we can take it with us to church. But when I get back, I'm going to set it up there on the shelf. Now, he's not talking about the fact that we shouldn't have these experiences. We shouldn't ask Jesus into our heart. He is just arguing against the natural conclusion that this presents in people's lives. That once you see it as a once and done thing, then it's easy for you to separate it out, to compartmentalize it, to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm a employer, I'm a employee, whatever you want to say. It's easy for us to separate it out rather than to say, I'm a Christian father, I am a Christian husband, I am a Christian dad. So what Paul is, or Peter is saying here, you've got to nurture this longing, using this, this metaphor, we would not feed our babies once and consider it done. Look, honey, I did it. Why would in the world would we consider that as a possibility for our faith? Believers naturally grow spiritually when they are fed, just like a baby naturally grows physically when it's fed. And all we have to do as believers is to accept the spiritual food from the hands of your loving Heavenly Father. And it just happens that way because that's the way God made the Spirit. Just as he had made the physical body. When spiritually hungry, we eat. And when we eat, we grow. And the result is it creates a space in us for faith maturation to happen. Where it's possible for faith maturation to happen. And this is the central message of uh, Peter's uh, uh, process of spiritual growth. Nowhere are people seen as merely waiting passively for their reward. Nowhere. Rather, they are active participants. I remember feeding John... He was a neat baby. I mean, clean, clean. Anna was messy. Eight, it was everywhere. Katie was too. I don't know. Guy, girl thing, I, I don't know, you know? But I would, I, I would feed John, whether he was on this green string bean thing out of a bottle or something like that, or I'd give him his formula or milk or whatever it was, and... And, and, and he had to participate in that. But the older he got, he did not expect me to give him a spoon with green crap on it. Did he? No. He wanted, he wanted pizza. In fact, one of the things that he said about his senior year of high school was that he had pizza every day. 
I said, wouldn't you want to celebrate what you learned? Now, he celebrated that, you know. But this, you are an active participant in your faith journey. I hope you don't come here thinking that you are supposed to be spoon-fed from me or Shane or your Sunday school teacher. Listen, I have eight and a half hours, almost 10 hours of study on this passage this week. I got pages and pages and pages of notes and illustrations that are on the cutting floor that you will never see. You are getting chewed up, digested, word of God, put together and given back to you. Don't you want that stuff too? And that's what God is offering. That's what it is. If you approach this relationship with God, and you've all have experienced in one way or another, at least most of you have experienced this goodness of God, do you not see the importance of what God is saying here or what Peter is saying here? That you've got to be an active participant in your faith journey. If indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You long for it. Now, I'm going to skip over that growing spiritually and, 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 and uh, uh, your faith. Uh, uh, you long and you grow because that is the natural response or reaction that happens when you long, when you are feeding yourself this. But Paul, Peter moves into verse 3. If you look here, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, we already know that they have. Just go back to the last several verses that we talked about at the beginning of chapter 1. We know that they have. They have this purity of hearts. They love. It's been played out. They are uh, been born again of, of, of imperishable seed. That is a way of Peter saying, going back to John 3, 3, Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. This is a Peter's rendition of that that says, you are born not of what people have done. It's not because of what we've preached to you. It's because of God's work in you. It's what God is doing in you. This is all the work of God. And so all the ways that they have experienced, he's not questioning whether or not they've experienced it. What he's doing is showing him, showing them the catalyst that starts the growth process. The catalyst that starts the growth process is what Peter's sharing here. You see, spiritual growth begins when wherever we are, we intentionally and deliberately lean into the goodness of God. From the Psalter, he's quoting from David, uh, the Psalm 36, where David is inviting, oh, taste and see. That's an invitation. But that's not what Peter's doing here. It's in past tense. If indeed you have tasted. He's saying, go back and remember the ways that God has been good in you. And in the remembering of God's goodness, we've tasted and experienced what we've tasted and experienced from God moves our eyes off of the storms, off of our own ability, 
and on to God and God's possibility. See, when you are focusing on what you can do and your strength, guess what the solution births out of? What you can do. But when you start to look back and you allow the Holy Spirit to just kind of fill your hearts and your minds and say, hmm, I wonder what God has done in the past for me. And I go back and I think and I reflect. Oh yeah, the goodness of God. I tasted it. And it was good. I have seen it in these moments. It moves our eyes off of what we can do onto the promise of what God is doing. And guess what? Our confidence, our faith grows. Our faith grows the more that we do that. Here's, if you were going to break this down, what Peter is saying, let me just bring this to a, a, a natural conclusion, and I want to ask you a few questions at the end. If you were going to break down what Peter is saying here, he is saying the goal is faith maturation. The goal is to grow your faith. The catalyst that starts it, the catalyst that sparks it, is the personal experiences that you have had that the Lord is good. So you want your faith to grow? Peter says, start with the goodness of God. Start with worship. Start with your relationship with him. Block out everything that is trying to distract you from taking your eyes off of God, the storms, the persecutions, the things that are pulling our attention, the things that we so easily slide into every time they're offered to us and we know is, are bad. He says, take your eyes off of yourself and put them on God. And what this does is it spurs a response inside of us to long for more. And suddenly we see what God has done in the past as a possibility in the future. And here we are standing in between. Holding on to what God said in the past and expecting God to do it again in the future. This is what Peter is inviting his readers to do. And this is, I think, the word for us today. So if what Peter is saying is true, what Peter is saying is true, then spiritual growth, faith, maturity, it begins by asking, when have I tasted and seen the goodness of God? For me, some of the most remarkable times that I've seen and tasted the goodness of God have been circumstances of utter darkness. I, I, I don't think, I don't say this in jest, but it's almost that, that God wants to bring me to a place 
of a faith crisis only to get my eyes off of what I can do and put my eyes back on what he promises to do. There's a story in the book of Joshua about uh, after Joshua has uh, re- renewed the covenant he, 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 and, and Jericho has yet uh, uh, has yet to be is yet to be um, uh, conquered. It's a big fortress. It's a big city. It's a prime time. He has to get Jericho. He knows God's with him, so he's out. and And the scriptures is it's in in Joshua five. It starts at thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen. And I am. He says he's walking around Jericho. He's looking. Jericho's in the distance, and the scripture doesn't tell us, but. But the obvious thing is, is that he's thinking about, okay, how do I do this? What's the strategy that I take these million or so uh, men and we're going to ta- attack us? Do we, do we do a siege? Do we cut off food from getting in so that they starve them? And that was going to take a long time. And when word gets out to the rest of Cana, all these other armies, they're going to get more prepared and it's just going to make it longer. I mean, what do I, what do I do? The commander of the Lord's army that we find out is the Lord himself comes in and he has a sword drawn and Jesus, or rather Joshua is there and he's jolted out of, he's startled out of his, his thinking and his planning and, and, and he says a matter of, of, of probably reflect, uh, uh, very reflexively, he says, are you for us or are you for them? Are you on my side or are you on the enemy's side? And the, the uh, commander of the Lord, the Lord says on ne- neither side. Which is, wait a minute, isn't that odd that God would tell Joshua, I'm not on your side? Not on your side? I'm not on their side? I mean, he does this so that Joshua doesn't think that I can manipulate God, that I have God in my hip pocket. What God is telling Joshua is that you don't have me in your hip pocket. I have you in my hip pocket. It's not about what you want. It's about what I'm going to do here. And I would imagine inside of Joshua, this is the time that he's going to tell me exactly what to do. And he doesn't. Do you know what he does? He says to Joshua, worship. But but God, what about the problem? Worship. But God, I don't know if, (laughs) you have no idea. I do. Worship. And allow your eyes to go back, Joshua, to while you were in in Egypt and coming across the Red Sea. And how I prepared and and took care of you that you did not even have to get a new pair of shoes when you were coming those 40 years across the wilderness. I had you. And when you didn't think manna was enough, I gave you quail. I took care of you. Why in the world would you think that I brought you to this place only to pull the rug out from under you? Worship me. Take your shoes off and worship me. Do you know what happens when you remember the goodness of God? You are worshiping God. You see, the question is, why do people who have experienced God's goodness choose to not remember the goodness of God. Choose to go with themselves. They might choose to go with themselves because they do it on their own. 
because they have distractions. They have busyness. They're allowing their TikTok, their, their social media to be on all the time. They are not practicing the discipline of solitude, getting alone with God in prayer and remembering. Other people might say, well, I have, they have spiritual complacency. They like this much of faith in Jesus and that's it. Too much of Jesus, someone's gonna call me a freak. Do you see what's happening in Asbury, in Wilmore, Kentucky? A lot of things God's moving, but if you follow the threads, people are calling them freaks. One little article said, bless their little heart, Christians think they can be revived again. Oh my goodness. Well, bless your little heart if you think God is not on your side. <laughs> Spiritual complacency, I want this. Maybe they choose not to visit the past goodness of God because they have disappointment with God and that's okay. That's all right, get into that place where you can remember. And other times it is sin and temptation that cause us to do, to focus on our own selves and what we want and what we can do. Listen, none of these should be able to stand between you and Christ. None of these should be elevated up. In your quiet time, identify those things whether it is distractions or spiritual complacency or disappointment with God or sin and temptation. Because if you are not hearing the word of God, then there is something inside of you that is preventing you from hearing it. And maybe it is unconfessed sin. Maybe it's complacency. Whatever it is, do business with God. Because you're not gonna grow your faith on your own. It's always gonna be connected to worship and recognizing the goodness of God. I think purity, Carrie Job said this, I think purity is where it is, where it starts. Purity, pureness of heart. Hunger is where spiritual formation and grows. And longing after God is where it stays, is the sustenance of it. Gracious God, I pray that we find ourselves in a place of goodness and presence of God and, and that you are who you say you are. And, and no matter, God, the, the uh, ways that we have uh, entertained and, and defined and, and, and made this, oh God, about us, we pray that maybe for a moment, if the walls have built up, we pray that you would, that your spirits would break wall, holes through that wall. And that we maybe for the umpteenth time or maybe the first time would begin to lean into the sunshine, the warmth of your grace and your goodness. Because God is not about the quantitative of our faith growing. It's about, it's about is our faith growing? It's not about how much. So I pray, oh God, that our, uh, the object of our faith becomes you and you alone.
It's in your name we pray. Amen.